Across the world, human rights defenders are adapting to life under the COVID-19 pandemic and working to both continue their regular work and also to provide additional support to groups who are already vulnerable and marginalized. In this episode of Frontline Defenders' Rights on the Line podcast, we continue to learn about the impact of the health crisis on the work of HRDs on the front lines. In China, even as the complete closure of Wuhan was still in full effect, human rights defenders and organizations reported spikes in the number of cases of domestic violence being called into hotlines. What has now emerged as a consequence of the stay-at-home policy in numerous countries is that the virus has left women trapped with their abusers. We talk with feminist activist Liu Pin about what the experience in China has been and what can be expected. Another impact of COVID-19 is that with the overwhelming of health services to care for the sick, other medical procedures are delayed or inaccessible. For women seeking abortions who live in countries where such procedures are almost completely outlawed, traveling abroad is the only way to access their right to choose. Yet with travel restrictions and cutbacks in transportation services, these options are drastically reduced. Karolina Wienskiewicz from Poland joins us to talk about the situation there. Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh are living in deplorable conditions, where risks of waterborne and other infectious diseases are exceptionally high due to their unhygienic living conditions. There have been diphtheria outbreaks, and respiratory and skin diseases are common. We talk with a Rohingya refugee in a camp in Cox's Bazar to understand what is happening now that the COVID-19 virus is present in the country. For more information about HRDs and the COVID-19 crisis, visit Frontline Defenders website www.frontlinedefenders.org/covid19. This podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. More episodes assessing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will be released in the coming days and weeks as we offer this podcast a solidarity to human rights defenders and their struggles for justice. In mid-February 2020, as the coronavirus outbreak led to cities and counties across China imposing strict lockdown, a mother named Wang and her two young children, with luggage in tow, walked for almost five hours in an attempt to return to their hometown in a neighboring county after she was beaten by her abusive ex-husband. She called the police, who refused to dispatch officers to help, but instead told her to ask relatives to collect them, without offering to issue a special permit, which was needed to travel between counties during the lockdown. In the end, Wang's relatives were left with no choice but to convince her ex-husband to drive the mother and children to the county border, where they were picked up by their relatives. That a victim must rely on their abuser to reach safety is a sobering indication of how far China still has to go in effectively addressing domestic violence, despite the coming into force of an anti-domestic violence law almost four years ago. Domestic violence is a systematic and widespread crime in China. According to a 2016 survey by the state-organized umbrella group All China's Women Federation, 30% of women who are married have experienced domestic violence. On average, a woman is beaten by her husband every 7.4 seconds, and 40% of femicides resulted from domestic violence. Every year, 157,000 women in China commit suicide, and 60% of those suicides are attributed to domestic violence. Chinese human rights defenders mobilized in the face of the COVID-19 crisis to provide support to women who face being locked up in their homes with their abusers. Equality, a Beijing-based NGO campaigning against domestic violence, registered a surge in calls to their hotline, while in a number of countries, there are 30% spikes in the reporting of domestic violence 
by police. Frontline defenders talked with Lu Pin, a Chinese feminist HRD, founder of the online journal Feminist Voices, and developer and curator of Above Ground, which is a photo exhibition documenting public performances staged by the Young Feminist Activists Group since 2012. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Could you talk about the history of the last few years of the work you and other women in China have done to raise awareness of domestic violence as an issue and the public campaigning that was done by women human rights defenders before the passage of the anti-domestic violence legislation? That's a long story. Uh, after we had been work, working for uh, uh, advocating for anti-domestic violence law, finally in 2016, we had that law. The, the, the National Congress enforced that law at the beginning of that at the beginning of that year, but that definitely wasn't the end happy end of the story. But actually, it's just a start uh, for the fight for for the fight. Uh, I mean, uh, it's the the law the and the National Anti uh, Anti Domestic Violence Law. Uh, doesn't guarantee any real protect for women's rights and um, victims. So we have to, we have lot, we still have a lot of work to do to argue for uh, the protection they deserve, argue for the responsibility of the, especially the responsibility of the police. You know, if we uh, you know, now we, I, I think now to date uh, that we can see some. Uh, to be fair, we can see we could we can see we can see some progress. Yeah, yeah. But if we evaluate the situation from the perspective of the victims, I, 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 uh, um, my conclusion is not so. Uh, it's not so optimistic. Yes. Mm. If we was ask the question, what will victims, what will victims face? What will, uh, what kind of protection and help they can get? If uh, the answer is perhaps said later. Taking into account what you pointed out about the implementation of the law missing the protection of the victims, since the pandemic emerged in China and the government took measures to contain it, reports from NGOs indicate an increase in reports in domestic violence. Now that the lockdown is being lifted, do you think that there will be more pressure on the government to address this issue and improve the way in which the law is enforced and implemented, particularly in terms of greater assistance to the victims? I think no. You know, yeah, yeah. As you said, that now there are the, there have been more cases of domestic violence during the pande- pandemic. Yeah, and but uh, the problem is that who can press, who can give press to the police? <laughs> you know, well, there. I mean, there, 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 uh, there have been lo- uh, more needs to more needs for them to do something. But who can press them to do some to do to to to, to, to take their responsibility? That's a key uh, problem, you know. Uh, when one of, one of my close friends, uh, close friends, also a, a feminist volunteers volunteer, called the police, called the police to ask the police to inter- interview her interview or domestic violence of her neighborhood the the, the answer there's the response the reply of the police is that now people are all feel bad <laughs> now people are all in bad mood 
and we, it's not convenient for us to go to a neighborhood in this period. You see, they have more excuses. But now it's in the pandemic, so we cannot go to your neighborhood. On March 1st, after the lockdown of Wuhan and other strict measures went into effect, feminist activists launched an online campaign called, in English, Little Vaccine Against Domestic Violence, which received thousands of signatures in a relatively short time. Do you think this kind of campaign can make a difference in China? You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I should admit that uh, uh, if we launched this campaign at the begin at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, perhaps the public, uh, there was no so many people uh, paid attention to it, you know. I mean, yeah, this is sad, but I should admit that uh, uh, the issue of women's rights usually uh, is not uh, regarded as the most important issue. It was only several weeks after the uh, shutdown. Uh, we can. We have the. Ch- we had the chance to launch. The, we had the opportunity. We had the space. We thought. We 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 thought. We think. We saw that we had the opportunity. Now we had the opportunity to launch this campaign. And now, because at that time, people had already had some energy to could had some energy to pay attention to this issue, women's issue. So, uh, and um, but uh, the. Uh, one advantage of the time of the time, window window opportunity was that people <laughs> had nothing else to do <laughs> when everything is shut down. So uh, people are. Lo- I'm I'm kidding, but I mean that people, uh, our volunteers, our potential volunteers, our community, uh, are, are, be, are always looking for something. They okay, looking for something they can do to help the society. So what we did, what we should, and what we should do is to give them, to give them, <laughs> to provide uh, issue, provide a platform, and provide um, a plan so that they can uh, a, a collective plan so that they can do, um, they can, they can participate in together, and they can uh, we we can organize a collective campaign. So I think that uh, we. We can. It's very now, you know, due to the due to the political harsh situation in politically harsh situation in China, it's very hard for for us to say that we can change the place through one single campaign. But um, we can uh, we can give people we can give we can uh, uh, organize people who are concerned about our uh, the, the the social justice. And we can make, uh, perhaps we can slow the process that when everything in our country is going to worse. <laughs> it's also, it's still important, you know, in this harsh situation. Yeah, I, we, we provide a channel that people can uh, speak up, uh, pre- uh, suppressed people can speak up, I think, yeah. And yeah, and I can also raise uh, the public awareness of the public, because you know, uh, when 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 thousand people participate in our campaign, and they share their information to their friend circles, so perhaps millions of people already, hundreds of thousand people already received our information. Mm. 
The work of women human rights defenders in China has put the issue of domestic violence into the public spotlight. However, we know that on other issues, the Chinese government does not tolerate public activism and HRDs organizing the public. Are you hearing from colleagues in China any reports of harassment, intimidation, or pressure against them for this kind of work? Or are you concerned about possible measures that will be taken by the authorities to go after the activists once the health crisis passes? Yeah, I agree that the issue of domestic violence got sort of toilets, as you said, from the pl- from the authority. Uh, perhaps because, you know, uh, the um, direct uh, perpetrator <laughs> is not the is not is is individual uh, is indi- uh, in pr- uh, the uh, the uh, the direct uh, perpetrators are individuals, uh, random individuals. So uh it looks like it looks like uh, our campaign that uh, did, doesn't uh, target doesn't target the police that doesn't directly target the police but um, the the tolerance is very limited actually uh, my colleagues in china and our uh, i i uh, one of at least one of my volunteers got um, one from the local police of her district, when he when she transferred and shared the, inform, the information of domestic our campaign online, the police approached to her uh, home and uh, forced her to delete the information. Yeah, this happened. This happened, and uh, I we definitely know that uh, the police is monitor everything, is monitor all of our activities. Yeah, and. Uh, they are, and uh, I should I should say that they already sent messages to uh, my colleagues to let them know they are monitoring, they are looking at everything. Yes, I think we actually we now we have we have no good uh, tragedy to fight to fight back or pre- fight back fight back in this situation. It's, it will if we fight. I mean, if we directly fight back, uh, yeah, we will got more trouble. So, but uh, what we can do is just to enlarge my, our campaign as enlarge the score, the influence of a campaign as much as possible before it was before it is stopped by the authority. And as long as our campaign got enough influence, everything is worthy. This is the only thing I, we can do. Uh, I should, I should, I, I should, I, I'm sorry, I should add something. I, I actually, I don't, I think the, I think the, the focus of the police actually is not, uh, I think the focus of the police, why, if you ask me why the police is so, as, why the, those police, uh, police are so, is so concerned about our campaign, I think perhaps uh, their focus is not the issue of domestic violence. Uh, they don't like people to organize themselves. They don't like like that people. They don't like to see that now people can self organize and uh, to speak up, stand more up for their own rights. It's dangerous for their <laughs> regime, <laughs> not because uh, not because of the single words term of domestic violence. Thank you again for joining us for this podcast and giving us insight into what is happening right now in China. 
Poland has some of the most restrictive and dangerous abortion laws in Europe. As part of the health system, abortions are only provided in the cases of rape, incest, some fetal abnormalities, or a threat to the mother's health. In the midst of the global COVID-19 crisis, Poland's parliament just debated a draconian bill that would make its abortion laws even more restrictive by banning abortions of fetuses with serious abnormalities. Parliament held the debate on April 15th as required by law, but at a time when public life has been drastically cut back to curtail the spread of the virus. As a result, Poland's notoriously vocal, strong reproductive rights movement couldn't take to the streets by the hundreds of thousands, as they have in the past, to demonstrate against the proposed assault on bodily autonomy. Despite the timing, women human rights defenders, sexual health advocates, and a wide array of civil society groups in Poland have defied the lockdown to protest the bill while maintaining social distancing. Protesters in the streets of Warsaw and Poznan stood around two meters apart and held signs demanding reproductive justice. An online petition opposing the bill has gathered almost 750,000 signatures. Defenders collected and disseminated videos from the public using the hashtag protest at home. WHRD say this collective public resistance echoes the ongoing strength of the reproductive rights movement in Poland, where doctors, nurses, lawyers, and HRDs continue to forge networks of support for people who need abortions. I spoke with Karolina Vienskevich about the life-saving work of her organization, Abortion Dream Team, which is fighting a sustained attack on reproductive justice. In the midst of the pandemic, Carolina is also struggling to combat an increase in misinformation campaigns, exploitation, and rumors that travel across borders is no longer possible for those needing access to health care. Thank you for speaking to us, Carolina. Please give us some context for how women in Poland are able to access abortion services, given that the law in Poland is so restrictive. Abortions usually happen uh, with pills at home or people travel to Germany, mostly to Germany and to Slovakia, but also farther to the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. And that is simply because of the fact that the abortion is allowed um, longer in pregnancies. With so many restrictions in place for travel, how has that impacted your ability to help women who are in need of medical services? We still are successfully uh, helping people get their abortions when they need uh, surgical abortions. Uh, we still are able to uh, to get them there and um, and finalize it. It's taken a lot more time, a lot of stress also. Plus, of course, when people come back to Poland, they have to obligatory go under quarantine for uh, for two weeks. So that's that's the problem. And for many people, it's just they they cannot travel because. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's uh, it's that they do not tell anyone about the problem. So actually, right now, to tell people, to tell someone, to tell our family or our friends or whoever I'm going abroad is very problematic because you have to have a really, really good reason to to go abroad in these times. In a situation such as this, I imagine that logistics have become more complicated and costs have increased. What kind of challenges are you facing since the COVID-19 crisis began? Some clinics in Slovakia, for instance, are uh, still like saying that they can they, they, they can um, provide services and we uh, we know that it's impossible to get there. So uh, so so we just really. Mm, warn people uh, to pay any money to those who promise them uh, to to take them to Slovakia or uh, or anything because that is just a very high risk of of, of being uh, being um, high risk of fraud.
basically, because because of course there are people who who want to uh, make money, uh, as, and this also happens with Polish services, uh, websites that offer appeals for a lot more money uh, than uh, than international organizations, and they do not send the the, the complete set of medicines. So. Uh, of course, this happens uh, everywhere when you know people need something, and there are people who are going to take advantage of that. Especially when those people who need something are very uh, desperate, and uh, and they know that they have very limited time. So, uh, so that's that's also uh, that's that's another thing, and that's uh, that's that, that's been happening for a long time now. So it's not even. Um, that much related with, with COVID-19 at the moment, but still because there are a lot of, um, there is a lot of misinformation, I would say, uh, around the fact that um, the appeals don't get through uh, the borders, like they cannot, like if they are sent from abroad that they won't come to my house for instance for instance or that i will have to take wait for them for i don't know four or five weeks people tend to uh consider using these polish websites because these uh, promise them that you will have your pills like tomorrow you know and a lot of people think that it's their only option because borders are closed and nobody like is can guarantee them that the pills that will uh, get through, which is uh, not true because they get through and they uh, are su- successfully sent. So, but there are lo- there are people who just take advantage of uh, of uh, of this misinformation and lack of knowledge on the side of those who need something. In the U.S. and other countries, there are efforts by anti-choice groups to use this health crisis to advance their cause and further restrict access to abortion. And smear and defame activists such as yourself. Are you seeing this in Poland from such groups? They have trucks. Uh, usually, most of them are in Warsaw, but they are also in bigger cities. So they have trucks that are covered with those images, with those like abortion kills. Look what you like. Look what they are doing. This amount of children are killed every year in Polish hospitals and all kinds of all kinds of um, uh, information like this that you can imagine and they go around cities and they have all these slogans that they uh, usually also shout out uh, from the speakers and right now they are also still doing this um, uh, and uh, actually writing um, on the basically empty streets, uh, but now they have new information to give to people, which is that abortion kills a lot more people than um, COVID-19. So uh, this is um, in a way ridiculous, but they are really doing this. They are really using that uh, that uh, comparison, I would say, that it just you know takes a lot more uh, victims than, than any virus. What kind of targeting do human rights defenders, such as yourself, normally face? What we have in our criminal code is that it is not a crime to have my own abortion, but what's criminalized is aiding and abetting. So, you know, we have this big discussion what it actually means, and some people say that helping uh, people get information uh, about pills, how, where to get them, how they work, uh, what to do, how to prepare, 
um, and you know all this process of actually causing a miscarriage that even giving information about that uh, you know privately or in a public way that is it is helping others with abortions which uh, I'm also a legal activist and a lawyer and uh, I'm arguing that this is just it, it's not a crime, but uh, but still, uh, those who are involved in this kind of activism, this kind of uh, of of work, are targeted uh, by uh, by those um, anti-choice organizations, and uh, and we have some. Sometimes they just you know inform. Oh, finally, we're gonna we're going to get to them like is this is the end these abortionists are just you know bad people and we're going to put an end to it and uh nothing really happens uh but there are people who are afraid that what they are doing is 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 problematic is dangerous in terms of uh of um of this vision of of criminalization in a way Given that this health crisis is going to continue for a while, what can people do to help women in Poland and other countries where access to abortion services are restricted or criminalized? Abortion costs money and a lot of people just do not have money and they think they think that uh, they cannot have abortion because of that. And it is important, especially in these times, to, uh, to, to in a way, uh, put and to, to that barrier because it is a big barrier and a big obstacle to, to abortion. And, uh, and as Mara Clark, the, um, the founder of abortion um, support network, will say that you know, rich people can always get abortions and sometimes poor people just have children instead. So, uh, so we think that it is just very, very unfair that, uh, that sometimes the, the only reason for, for having a child is uh, when you don't have money to to get an abortion so uh if if there but also um i think that also informing um through our channels if we are safe to do that if it's not in a way threatening for us uh it's it's good to to spread the news to spread the news about uh different initiatives in different countries depending on where you are uh, to let people know uh, what are the safe options to, to have an abortion. As countries close their borders and enforce social distancing policies, refugee populations around the world living in camps or other makeshift facilities face the COVID-19 crisis with great fear and trepidation. Distancing is not an option in overcrowded camps where healthcare facilities are poor to non-existent. When Myanmar's military attacked Rohingya communities in 2016 and 2017, more than a million Rohingyas fled to Bangladesh and became refugees there. Despite international condemnation, more than two years on, the refugees remain in squalid conditions. We talk now with a Rohingya human rights defender who provides support to the refugees in Cox's Bazar, where the government of Bangladesh has imposed internet cutoffs and confiscated SIM cards from refugees. It is not safe for the HRD for us to use his name, and unfortunately, the connection during the call was not completely clear, so we have voiced over his interview. What is the situation for you right now and for the refugees in the camps? It's now just a matter of time. Before the outbreak reaches my camp, where hundreds of thousands of refugees like myself are living. 
What makes matters worse is that we rely on aid for survival. People here do not have access to income and so cannot get the most basic material needed to prevent the spread of corona, such as masks, face masks and so in camp of thousands of people sharing hand pump and toilet hygiene is a problem. Bangladesh has imposed a lockdown in, on Cox's Bazar, including the camp, so rumors are spreading. What is the government doing in terms of health services for the refugees? It has been reported that the government has cut off internet access for the refugees. What can you tell us about that? Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world, local hospitals have no ventilation in hospitals and no capacity of intensive care in the camps. While the government of Bangladesh has said the Rohingya will be given access to government medical facilities if needed, it is unclear what criteria will be used to qualify for this access or how a patient will be transferred or quarantined should someone fall ill with the symptoms of corona it is unclear where we can even take the patient there appears to be no place that has arranged testing within the camp many facilities and services have been temporarily closed medical clinics that run inside the camp are shut by government it is clear they will be quickly overwhelmed when the virus hits. What message would you like to send out, given that the world today has largely forgotten about the Rohingya refugee crisis? The government cut off the internet and confiscated SIM cards in the camp. We need access. We need to be able to share information with friends and family. Yet we, we are deprived of even this small lifeline. The telecommunication restriction means that many Rohingya refugees cannot even call the helpline that has been set up by the government. Our situation is nearly desperate and that is before the virus hits throughout the camp. Thank you for taking the time to share what it is like for the Rohingya refugees there in Bangladesh. All of us are sitting ducks and ultimately depend on outside help for survival. The international community can make a huge difference to our lives by providing whatever they can, whatever they can do to help us at least face this crisis with dignity. We need health care, high capacity test kits and medicine. We need Bangladesh to lift the telecommunication block. We are once again faced with the battle of survival itself. Having already endured a brutal military crackdown and displacement from our home in Myanmar, now we face the prospect of devastation. Social distance, self-isolation and quarantine are not realistic for Rohingya refugees like me. My family of seven live inside five meter tarpaulin structure. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your time amidst this crisis.